Hey folks, I'm Jeremy. And I'm John. And we are Poemcast. Breathing life into pulmonary and critical care core content. Here at Poemcast, we believe in a brain-protective strategy, delivering information at 6 megabytes per kg. Y'all are so nerdy. <laughs> so take a deep breath. <sighs> we are diving in. <laughs> that wasn't terrible. No. So we're here this evening with one of my favorite physicians, sort of a jack-of-all-trades. He has many areas of expertise and interest, most notably advanced care planning, pulmonary hypertension, and education, among many others. Tonight, we're going to have him on to talk about a specific part that he's been working on, which is code status. So we have a 95-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, on dialysis, heart failure, who comes in with cough and altered mental status. She was intubated, and the family member is in the room, who you actually find out is the neighbor, and she is listed as a full code. What in the world do we do next? Are you asking me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, John and Jeremy, for that introduction. So I I think it's fair to say that this is a a very common scenario to encounter in ICU medicine and one that we sometimes struggle with. And I think the biggest challenge and the thing that's most daunting right out of the gate when you walk down to the emergency department and, and are presented with that case is you just get the sense that these discussions typically take more time than you feel like you have. And I think many providers are overwhelmed by the disparity between uh, the time that they feel that having that discussion the right way is going to take and the time that they feel on the other side that they have to devote to it. I've done a lot of thinking about this, and in my own practice, I um, kind of tried to come up with a few uh, words or phrases or questions that helped me to quickly get down to the bottom of Uh, determining how much time uh, I'm going to be able to devote to having that discussion with the family member and in specific whether that effort is likely to be fruitful uh, and to help us really make important and accurate decisions in the time frame that we have allotted. So I think the first question that I ask is to pull the family member aside and to ask them what they know about their loved one's condition. And you generally get the sense within a couple of sentences or uh, a a brief description about their level of understanding about the disease severity and the patient's state of illness. And that usually sets the tone for the next part of the conversation. Really good. So just kind of gauging where they are and where you need to start off with explaining uh, exactly what needs to be done next with the patient. Yeah, that, that's correct. So I, I think after that, that first question and the response that I get, um, you know, the next thing that I generally want to do is reconcile what the loved one's understanding of, of the condition is with my understanding of their condition as I've got it at that point. And if there's a big discrepancy between what they suspect is going on with their loved one and what I suspect is going on, then I instantly get the sense that this is probably something that's going to take more time than I can devote right there in the moment in the emergency department. And I initially, I'm sorry, and I immediately turn my thoughts to 
stabilizing the patient's condition at that moment, getting them safe, making sure that we've got a good plan in place for their imminent care needs, and then I start game planning for uh, creating an opportunity for all of us to sit down and do a deeper dive with the family about about the situation. So we have a couple of questions for you. At our institution, you were heavily involved in splitting code status from the rest of goals of care. Can you tell me why you pushed for this? Yeah, so I, I think that this was something that, um, you know, is part of that bigger conversation that we were just referencing. The code status is something very specific and very unique apart from any other aspect of the care plan. The code status is quite simply what to do when the heart stops and the patient is not breathing. Every other decision that we make is a medical decision the same as should I give Tylenol for a headache? Should I prescribe antibiotics for bronchitis? Should I give amiodarone for this SVT? There seemed to be, and, and I think this feeds into the next several series of questions, a uh, conflating of different ideas that had occurred, not just in our system, but in, in several other systems, about uh, elements of the care plan that are not necessarily related to what to do when the heart stops and the patient is not breathing. And this led to a lot of confusion amongst providers, amongst patients, and amongst family members about how we structured a care plan for someone with serious health conditions. So I I have used this example before, and I think it's a pretty good one, uh, at the risk of making my grandmother famous on pod waves. (laughs) I I talk about my 96-year-old grandmother, and she's genuinely the healthiest 96-year-old person that I know. She lives alone, independently, in the house that she raised my mother and uh, several of my aunts and uncles. She's really, really healthy for 96 years old. But she's very, very clear that when she dies, when the good Lord pulls her number, as she says, that she wants to go peacefully and comfortably, preferably in her own home, in her own bed. Conversely, if my 96-year-old grandmother developed a urinary tract infection with uh, severe sepsis, acute kidney injury, and low blood pressure, and we determined that an early aggressive course of IV fluids, antibiotics, and perhaps low-dose vasopressors over several hours could turn that around, as we often see in all types of people with urinary tract infections and associated sepsis, sure, I think she'd want access to the best care. And I think that wouldn't be unreasonable at all, even if that meant a day or two in the ICU. Now, that's different from what happens if we start down that road with that goal in mind of getting her better quickly and restoring her to the level of function that she is for a potentially discrete and fixable problem, compared to if we're now on ICU day two, she hasn't responded to those therapies, we're adding the third presser, she's developing symptomatic arrhythmias, she's got delirium, her renal function is worsened, and we're heading towards dialysis, we're getting into a different, a different situation. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's 
you know, just highlights the importance of having that discussion in a prospective and ongoing fashion as time goes on, depending upon how the care goes. But I wouldn't want to deprive my 96-year-old grandmother of the opportunity to potentially get better from something very discreet uh, in the setting where she's not dead. If she's dead, she's dead, and she's made that very clear. And so um, I I think that's uh, kind of a, a, I call it the grandmother test. (laughs) So I want to talk specifically about the term DNR, because we used to use it, uh, and then we switched to A&D, allow natural death. And uh, you're one of the big uh, people pushing us back to DNR. And so let's discuss your motivations on why we're making the change back and uh, go from there. Yeah. So uh, it kind of is related to the same issue that we were running into with um, ideas surrounding uh, code status, which is that the term A&D seemed to engender a lot of confusion and ambiguity amongst providers, patients, and families. So... To say A&D, allow natural death, you could imagine might be taken in a lot of different ways. Some people, some real purists might say that a natural death is a death free of having received any medical therapies. No antibiotics, uh, no medicines for pain, I guess somebody could say. Uh, Certainly no heroic interventions, uh, no central lines, no arterial lines, no surgical procedures. Some people might say that a natural death was one uh, that occurred despite a lot of ongoing active support, but a death in which CPR was not provided. And that's kind of the other end of the spectrum uh, from the first example that we gave. And so the problem that we were having was we were having a lot of providers who you'd kind of ask or it would come up in conversation about what their expectation about A&D was, what they thought it meant, and we were getting a lot of uh, different answers. Conversely, DNR, do not resuscitate, seems pretty clear to most providers, and it actually ties in with uh, at least the language in the Georgia Code, uh, which is really a, a legal precedent, that DNR refers to what to do when the heart stops and the patient's not breathing, and forces you to ask yourself the question, If I'm standing at the bedside or if I'm called to the bedside and I'm thinking about starting CPR, do I start CPR or do I not? That's what DNR means. It's much less ambiguous than allow natural death. So that was the motivation for the change in our system was to provide clarity. In in a uh, similar vein, we had also uh, removed the term partial code from our system. Um, Can you kind of elaborate on, on why that was done? Yeah, and that's kind of part and parcel of the discussion that we've been having, which was that the code status is a very specific thing. When the heart stops and the patient's not breathing, do you start CPR and ACLS? Uh, Do you go through the algorithm for the V-fib arrest or for the PEA arrest? And if you do, you go through it completely, right? You dot the I's, you cross the T's. You check all the boxes in your mental walkthrough and you reevaluate things over the course of the resuscitative effort. Uh, Partial code, I think, the way that partial code came about was people wanting to get out ahead of and, again, conflating different ideas about what to do when the heart stops with what to do when other major serious medical problems uh, are occurring when we are contemplating using 
other invasive or significant therapies or support devices uh, to treat someone's uh, medical conditions. So dialysis for acute renal failure or vasopressors for shock or inotropes for cardiogenic shock or uh, even intubation and mechanical ventilation a variety of the other things that we do are all very serious, very weighty uh, uh, considerations for a patient or for their family members and for us when we're trying to decide how to take care of somebody and may or may not be appropriate depending upon medical circumstances. And the decision to use those therapies should uh, come about through discussion with the multidisciplinary care team, but also after having a better sense for what the patient and or their family's wishes for their care are. And there are some people who say, you know, that they can't imagine a circumstance where they would desire to have some of those things done, even if they would still seek out medical care. So we wanted to separate the idea that there's something you do or don't do when the heart stops versus how you conduct the plan of care in accordance with somebody's philosophy about their life and about their death. We also wanted to remove the confusion and ambiguity that went along with partial code and led people to make decisions, for example, like to do chest compressions but not give epinephrine boluses or to give epinephrine boluses but not do chest compressions or to intubate but not put on the ventilator. Uh, And you had people saying, well, the patient is partial code, and we discussed these things, and I asked them, did they want to get epinephrine? Did they want to have chest compressions? Not realizing that, that what we were asking them when we were asking them those questions was asking them if they desired potentially inappropriate therapies. So we were leading ourselves into situations where we would have these discussions and realize that what we were talking about was not anything initially conceived of by uh, those who devised the advanced cardiac life support algorithm, but rather by a construct that we had superimposed on top of that in an effort to try to provide more choice and also uh, to speak to uh, how could we resolve issues surrounding some of the other major interventions that we provide, not necessarily simply CPR and ACLS uh, in seriously ill patients. So I think just to try to summarize a bit, because I've heard you talk about this a number of times, I think my understanding of it now, and uh, and it seems very easy, but it's taken me a little while to get to this, is a arrested patient do not resuscitate. If the patient is not arresting, then that is all needs to be documented somewhere else and is a separate decision-making process. Right. And I think the couple of the other terms we've been adding on, tell me what your thoughts on them. I've heard a lot of DNR, but full supportive care, and DNR, no escalation of care. Do you like those terms? Yeah, and I think those are pretty good terms. And I think they serve the purpose uh, in a better way than the previous use of the term partial code because... Uh, They set the code status, but then they attempt to set a philosophical agenda, if you will, about uh, the overarching philosophy of how we care for a patient beyond the code status. What I think we're trying to move to is to make that more specific. 
And along the lines of things that we're in the process of trying to do at our health system, in accordance with an initiative that's already present at the state level, is to incorporate uh, a POLST form, a POLST document, not only uh, in the outpatient setting, but also in the inpatient setting. And specifically in Georgia, we have the Georgia POLST initiative. And for those who aren't familiar, uh, a POLST stands for Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Therapies. And what a POLST is, is a set of orders that starts with a code status, resuscitate or do not resuscitate, but then allows a patient with a serious medical condition or conditions who is of a mind to want to speak to some other limitations to their course of care that may not be covered in the code status to do so in conjunction with having spoken with their provider and then to have a document that sets an agenda for the person's care that they can take with them so it's portable from institution to institution and this is supported by the state that for example a post form filled out in Columbus, Georgia or Macon, Georgia or Augusta or anywhere else that's valid that's signed and that the patient presents to any institution in the state of Georgia, if the institution caring for the patient knows that they have a POLST form, then they're obligated to adhere to the tenets of what's written in the POLST. So if I'm seeing a patient in the office who has very advanced COPD and chronic respiratory failure and over the course of a couple of years of of treating their COPD and respiratory failure, we've come to the conclusion that we've done all the reasonable things and the patient is highly symptomatic and perhaps near the end of life. And they're very clear that they would not desire to be resuscitated and that makes medical sense to me as the physician. Then we can settle on a do not resuscitate order. The patient may also say, uh, look, uh, you know, I, I understand what's likely to happen if I was to develop isolated respiratory failure severe enough to require mechanical ventilation and I don't think that that's in my best interest so I would not desire to be intubated nor to be mechanically ventilated and if my kidneys fail and you're talking about putting me on dialysis at 85 years of age or 90 years of age or whatever the case may be you know dialysis is not consistent with my wishes I wouldn't desire dialysis and come to think of it Um, artificial nutrition and things of that nature are also not consistent with my wishes, then we have the ability to specify those things ahead of time. So it starts with the code status and then we have the ability to expand upon that if the patient desires. Now all of those questions don't have to be answered. Um, They can be revisited over time and the POLST can be revisited over time. All of the elements of the POLST can be revisited. But it allows a patient the opportunity to state their wishes in more specific terms than perhaps a living will or an advanced directive uh, is able to, to typically do. Mm-hmm. So uh, often these conversations are, end up being the responsibility of the ED physician, the ICU physician, and, and now it's sounding like even the office physician. Um, most people would argue that ED and ICU physicians shouldn't be having these conversations or, or, or ideally uh, it shouldn't be on them to have 
those conversations when a patient is an extremist. But even in, in an office setting, uh, you have to think about, you know, getting them to have the pneumococcal vaccine and uh, all sorts of other kind of metrics and, and things like that. Who, who do you think um, the responsibility should kind of fall on to get the patients to be like your uh, 96-year-old grandmother? Who should be having the, <laughs> the conversations with these people? Well, I, I think like most things in medicine, it's really got to be a team effort. I don't think it can be overstated how important a primary care physician who's known a patient for a long time or even a specialty physician who's known a patient and seen a patient's course uh, change over a period of time, whether it be months or years, uh, an oncologist, a cardiologist, uh, a pulmonologist, um, There is a unique perspective that comes along with that, and the ability to have established a relationship and to establish a level of trust with a patient and their family over time is simply invaluable. In an ideal world, you would love to have providers who take care of patients with advanced chronic medical problems be having these conversations over time, revisiting them as the medical problems develop, and to have these living, breathing documents change as the patient's course and wishes and symptoms and disease changes. It's probably unrealistic to expect that that's going to happen with everybody. And so there will never be a time, in my opinion, in my lifetime, when it will not be incumbent upon emergency department physicians and ICU physicians and hospital providers or hospital-based providers to be adept at recognizing the need to have these conversations and at having these conversations. I think that was a really great conversation, Craig. It seems like we're heading in the right direction as a system in in relation to advanced care planning. Can you tell me what our next steps are and where we're headed? Yeah, so great question. Um, Our next initiative in the advanced care planning team is actually the incorporation of the Georgia Post uh, into our seven hospital system. We uh, envision doing this in the outpatient setting and having a, a pulse document that's signed by a provider and by the patient or their surrogate. We also envision leveraging the electronic medical record in the hospital not only to display active pulse documents that were filled out in the outpatient setting, but also to have um, language that mimics the pulse, uh, that sets levels of care incorporated in our inpatient care plan that starts with a code status but also has the potential to go beyond that if a patient clearly has desires or wishes about what levels of care are or aren't appropriate for them after talking with their physician. So that's really our, our next major initiative is to incorporate the tenants of the Georgia Pulse Initiative into our seven hospital system, both in the outpatient and inpatient setting. I think that if we do it right and if we leverage the electronic medical record the way that we think that we can and we've got a great team of of IT folks and care coordinators and uh, palliative care is involved, our critical care team is involved, if we do it right, I think think patients and providers are going to be really satisfied with the result that we have. Awesome. Thanks.